Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 9th of July, 2020. And so I wanna talk on this brief uh, segment about metaphysics and epistemology as it's associated with um, worldview of science and scientific reasoning. <clears throat> now don't worry, I'm not gonna spend a half an hour doing this. And I know I spent a fair amount of time last month um, doing a philosophical examination of how I see science functioning uh, as a scientist um, and as a worldview from this scientist perspective. So I'm not gonna go through that long treatise and I'm not gonna rearrange um, concepts and ideas now. I'm just gonna give you something I wrote recently when I've been contemplating how science is often overused uh, to explain the world and for people to be convinced that the scientific viewpoint is always the truth. Um, so uh, bear with me when I do this and hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it. So let's get started. So what I wanna do is I wanna take a moment from what I'm normally doing and I wanna take this moment and give it to something else and what I'm giving it to is my contemplative side. And I'm going to add my contemplative skills to that aspect of reasoning that's going to land on, I guess, my interpretation of metaphysics and epistemology very briefly as they interact with my discipline science. So I've discussed phenomenology and categories of thought in the past, and I've I think attempted to provide my view of science by removing this veil of impartiality, so often I believe illegitimately afforded to that worldview. To be clear, I do practice in the scientific worldview, and I wear that lens in my scholarly career and in my day-to-day -day life. But in particular, when I'm discussing with you authentic biochemistry and in my various med lectures uh, on YouTube, when I'm discussing biochemistry, physiology, genetics, and the like. But it's only a lens. And although science can provide, a, I think, a much clearer view of the natural world, it cannot and it should not be fashioned to shape reason itself. So if there are categories of mind, um, like Kant would say, or of reality, like Aristotle would say, neither of these, what I would call epistemological renderings, include a category for exclusively external knowledge. Now, by that I mean a way of thinking that does not involve self. So this was an element of, the, of my epistemological contribution that I called the endojective theory of mind. An existing individual-owned knowledge rather than a knowledge that ends up creating the mind. Again, all at the individual level. So the belief aliquot 
of the knowledge triad that I've mentioned many times, justified true belief as being a working definition of knowledge. So the belief aliquot of that portion of that, um, I think is be, should become the supreme element. So I think possibly of all of the great Western philosophers, the most recent anyways, and I know people laugh because Kant isn't that recent. 1781 was when he wrote the Critique of Pure Reason, by the way. But anyways, I think Kant comes closest to realizing um, what I might call a deficiency in the means to acquire knowledge. And I think he came to this by way of this Copernican revolution. You know, in other words, settling in on self and looking at the world from the perspective of self, rather than having the world um, look at self and then diagnose what self is, the world diagnosed by self. So it's an inverse of what Aristotelian science, if you want to call his work science, uh, and certainly his uh, philosophy, his metaphysics and his epistemology. So it's kind of like putting it um, in the inverse by considering that what you imagine the world to be like in your creative spirit by using ideation or in your collective empirical undertaking, both using reasoning skills and observation, what you think the world can derive for you as it is represented. Um, what I think Kant was trying to get at, and he wasn't probably the first one, I think Plato was at this too, at some uh, extent, but that the world um, is experienced by the individual. And so we later on know the theory of relativity from Einstein, and I am absolutely convinced that Einstein had read Kant and I think it very much inspired him to develop his theory of relativity. Um, but basically what it comes down to, that theory and also Kant's understanding of um, epistemology in the use of understanding metaphysics is that um, the world is understood by an individual. And so it's not that knowledge is out there and we uh, absorb it as some kind of emanation. And that would be more of a Platinian, Neoplatonist perspective. Um, what I think that these later philosophers uh, were really, uh, had, had something really going that made sense to me, was that it's more like we look at the world and we put in the world what we think is there and we try to interpret what it means, means to us and means to perhaps others. That's what I mean about going 180 or inverting that uh, interaction with world. So again, I think that neither of the epistemological understandings of Kant or Aristotle were ever really looking at um, how external knowledge exists on its own. So with the Copernican revolution of Kant, as, as it has been called, he explicitly allowed for the noumenal world as causing all empiricism and reason through the agentic experience of the phenomenal world in which the individual exists. 
And I separate out empiricism from reason because empirical observations are normally thought of, if you're a scientist, doing experiments, setting up a, a series of events that will get you to test a hypothesis. Or if you're just an observational epistemologist, like say Aristotle was, then you carefully examine, maybe from a phenomenological perspective, what the world is offering. And then you combine that with your skills of reasoning, your faculties of understanding and imagination, for example, and then your contemplative overview of utilizing those two faculties. So that's why I separate out empirical, which normally, normally means some kind of sensorial interaction with the world and then reasoning which is more of taking what is sensorial and turning it into a contemplative schemata so that's why i separate the two out but if the noumenal world causes all empirical and reasoning um, events through an agentic experience the individual agentic experience of the phenomenal world then that's how the individual exists within it. So this is a, what has been called a transcendental analytical method where we bracket off all the specific sense experiences and take the abstracted, what's called the unity of apperception as some kind of categorical reference. Again, thinking about those categories of mind. Uh, and, and these are ways to arrange the world from an uh, epistemological point of view and then filter through reason, right? So we think about the categories of modalities. So like what is, what is not, and what can be, what must be, right? Those are different forms of modality, right? Or a category of relation. That is, how is one thing associated with another? And then that's how the world is presented to us. Like the trees are associated with the forest and being individual units of that forest, right? And so the relationship of the tree to the person observing it is different and unique. And so when you want to be a phenomenologist and explain what the tree is like when you're cutting it down, for example, it's totally different when you're talking about a copse of trees and you're examining how the wind moves through them at dusk uh, in the high mountains. So it's a totally different perspective, right? And then there's quantity and quality, the other two categories. How do we quantize our world that is arithmetically and also geometrically? And arithmetically is like time and geometrically is like space. And then the quality of what we see. So this would be called secondary characteristics uh, by some philosophers. But I don't consider anything secondary. I think it's all primary. So the quality perspective, such as um, what does it smell like? What does it taste like? What colors are arranged around it? And so those four different categories then have subdivisions. And those four subdivisions are a way to understand how we interpret the world. And again, reasoning is always being used to compare and contrast and to recombine those uh, four general categories into the senses uh, and then explain to oneself what they're experiencing. So none of that though, I think really gives us 
anything more than, again, a transcendental analytical uh, method. And so we're really trying to look at the world then as a series of sense experiences. And again, we're abstracting it. So that's one element where I want to differ from uh, the great philosophers. So I also need to address, though, for me to get deeper into this, the Neoplatonic concerns, as I briefly mentioned a few moments ago, over exemplars. And that would have to be uh, taking on Plotinus. And I've read Plotinus, and I think his best discussion of this is in his Aeneid 6. So I draw attention to this by demonstrating that uh, there's paradox, right? And I like, I like to talk about paradox a lot uh, because I think most things are considered paradoxes. They're actually pseudo-paradoxes. Actually, what I mean by that is they're not really um, a, a situation where you are led to believe something's occurring that can't possibly happen. Nevertheless, it does, you know, a standard paradox. When indeed the thing that's happening isn't really what you would never have thought of could have happened but could have happened if you thought about it differentially, um, maybe didactically, using a dialectical series of conditions and rules and propositions and conclusions and evidence. When you think about the temporal sequences and the spatial sequences surrounding what you think couldn't possibly happen, but nevertheless does. Okay, so um, again, I draw attention to this by demonstrating that paradox as a thing in itself is distinct from the nominalistic consideration of things paradoxical. So by that, like, I guess what I mean is that you, one can predict a statement by calling it paradoxical, or I mean predicate, not predict, I mean predicate, by calling it paradoxical. But in and of itself, it actually is a predictive mode too, if you think about it. That's what I was thinking about. But I think predicate's a better word. So you can predicate the statement by calling it paradoxical. But in and of itself, it cannot be a paradox since that would invoke a real universal from which you're basing the paradox on. And I personally don't accept that universals are real, except within the con context of what is, what's called the synthetic a priori or essay, where you determine beforehand what you are capable of obtaining from observation. So essayers, synthetic a priori knowledge requires the schematization of the categories that I mentioned to you, to the experiences that you're, you're now having, endowed by the imagination, and they're real only within the confines of the phenomena. So that's the only place where you really get a universal. So you can conjure a universal out of your experiences, but the universals themselves are more nominalistic. That is, they exist only in a nominal form. That's, I think, pretty easy to argue for. Because if universal propositions exist, then there must be two species, I think. One that is absolute and apodictic, and one that has what we call exceptions. Now, right away, I think the second one's going to be easy to uh, knock off the, the fence post. But let's, talk, let's deal first with the one that's absolute. 
So the only absolute and apodictic principle that I believe escapes all reputation is the principle of belief. As belief is endojective, and the old school term for that is subjective, the metaphysical subjective, it cannot be universal unless each individual has both the capacity and the ability to decide with their own agency to assent to the concept that belief is absolute. However, there's a school of thought that is, uh, I think, somewhat co-dominant in science anyways, that considers belief non-existent, right? This is itself a belief, so it's an endojective or otherwise, in, a in, in what it comes down to for these people is it, you live in a closed universe model where absolutely every event is determined by the laws of nature itself, laws of course and quotation marks. Now this belief from the determinist is structurally a cognitive dissonance, in my opinion, and functionally a rational incoherence. Undeterred, these individuals hold that an individual does not own his beliefs, presumably Physics, chemistry, and biology are responsible for that. So if you're a determinist, you're going to trust in the fact that you have not even belief, and therefore belief can't be universal. But if you do believe in belief as coming from within, then that probably is the only truly absolute and apodictic principle that at least I can arrive at when I try to use my faculties of understanding and imagination to come up with what I cannot see a way to remove from the rest of all uh, epistemological and metaphysical concerns in my world. Now, second species of universal that I brought up fails, I believe, just tautologically. It cannot be universal if there are exceptions. Now, this is what you often hear in science. Well, and this really involves pattern recognition. So we say we generate hypothetical deduction. Then we say, okay, let's test this new system with this deduction and see whether or not it acts this way. And we design an experiment and we come up with results and we turn the results into uh, data and data into evidence. And then we discuss the evidence. And then we decide yes or no, did it fail or did it, pass the uh, null hypothesis. So I think the problem with that is that we know, even in the end of that process, and we get data, evidence that is, um, that appears to support the hypothesis, whatever it is it happened to be. Let's say its hypothesis says that phosphofructokinase 1 regulates glycolysis. And we set up an experiment and we indeed find out that if we alter allosterically the activity of that enzyme, all of the flow of glycolysis changes in some cells we're looking at or some animal model. But we would also have to say, well, only in this system can we say unobtrusively that PFK1 is indeed controlling glycolysis. Because we're talking about glucose entry into a cell 
such as what happens in the hepatocyte, then either um, hexokinase or glucokinase may have a very important role because it won't get any glucose brought into the system. And the only place you get it is from gluconeogenesis or maybe glycogen breakdown. And then you wouldn't expect to be discussing the role of glycolysis because you'd be moving either in the other direction or you'd be feeding into either export of glucose from the hepatocyte or utilization in um, glycolysis. Either way, you're still talking about the introduction, uh, the inbreaking of glucose. So you're talking about the frank metabolic pathway. PFK1 seems to work, but still you can find exceptions to this. And you find this in mutation experiments, usually done in microbes, where you alter the flux through the pathway and you can basically force another enzyme such as glycerol-3-phosphate dehydrogenase or even an oxidative pentosphosphate shunt pathway enzyme, like a transketolase or transaldolase, to apparently turn on as a major functioning regulator enzyme through the pathway by making mutations and altering the flux through the pathway. So there are always exceptions. So is it really a universal? I would argue no. And again, I'm arguing there's only one true universal. And the one that I, I've landed on is the universal that there is a, a, an event we call belief. And belief is what I believe is the core of the triad of justified true belief when we discuss knowledge. And then that leads me to be able to use that to divine my theories or views on epistemology and then epistemology ultimately to be able to um, instantiate a metaphysics. All right. So now we have to cover one more thing. And this is sort of a neoplatonic thing, but also you could just say it's a phenomenological record. There's something called facticity. So facticity, including the understanding of physical, chemical, biological, structured function relationships, the kind of thing that I do, stands must stand apart from what I'm talking about. Standing apart from what? From the contemplative metaphysics and what I'm calling its coordinated epistemology. Now, as an example of this, why I consider that facticity allowing for what I guess I would have to generate a new term, I apologize, but something like a pseudo-universal, not a partial universal, because that's a flaw, that it's a tautological error. But a pseudo-universal, I think I will allow myself to say, at least for purposes of this lecture. Anyway, a sphere is not a cube, okay? Electrons are negatively charged, only negatively charged. Um, an enzyme like acetylchloric carboxylase does indeed convert uh, bicarbonate, dissolved CO2, and acetyl-CoA into malonyl-CoA. And a Y chromosome cannot be replaced with an X chromosome in all the cells of an existing human being. Those are things which are facts. Now, are those universal statements? For the context that I'm describing them, sure they are. But I think I can bracket them off as individual occurrences in the whole scope of the world. And what I'm trying to get at is the contemplative metaphysics and coordinated epistemology. And that's where I say universals are only nominal. Now, let's go on with this. Science is only a method for uncovering our world. It is confined to phenomena 
you know, things that we can experience with our senses and, and with reasoning. And it's therefore shut out from, I think, the most intriguing thing in itself, which is indeed truth. Okay. Now, since we exist in an event-laden ontology where things change over time, the underlying foundation is the fortress I'm calling belief. Truth requires that an individual, it would be myself when I have a belief, or you as yourself when you have a belief, truth requires that an individual believes it. So truth is dependent on something, it's dependent on belief, it's not putting belief at the core of universal. So science is the uniquely worldview of what I would call paralogism, in that it steadfastly fails to account for belief, while it demands to focus on understanding. And so it's hypnotized by what it sees, and I believe it blinds itself to why. So again, I'm going to repeat that. Science is, un is the uniquely worldview paralogism. So paralogism means it goes beyond logic. And that steadfastly fails to account for belief while it demands to focus on, on this event understanding. It's hypnotized by what it sees as it blinds itself to the why. And the why then is the associated or the cupola to belief, you see. So that's all I really want to say about this. Um, I elaborate on it much more in my writings, and I have discussed this at some length in even in the Authentic Biochemistry podcast. I think this would have been back in May or maybe even in April. But I think you, there was a series of philosophical renderings about science that I went through probably an hour and a half, two hours of it. So I'm going to leave you now um, with that uh, small event of my discussion about epistemology leading to a metaphysics. And uh, the reason, again, I bring it up is because it's a science podcast. And so I talk about science all the time. I'm a scientist. It's a good worldview. It works. It, it allows for predictability. It allows for a rational view of the world. All of this is beautiful. And I mean that from both an aesthetic point of view and from a larger metaphysical point of view. But I also believe that science has its limitations. And the number one limitation that everyone must accept, I believe, is that science is based on beliefs. Scientists believe what they're doing. And I haven't said it yet, but I'll say it now. People's beliefs can be wrong. And so this is not a perfect system. And, it may, it, and where I'm coming from, it has less to do with data being flawed and more to do with how people interpret the data. And I think that this is where science is often misused and abused uh, for lay people and for the world at large. So with that, I'm going to leave you and hopefully um, say bye for now. <laughs>